Welcome to the Coming Home Well podcast, the show that educates, supports, and advocates for the veteran community. Your host, Dr. Tyler Piron, U.S. Army retired, will bring you exciting conversations with amazing guests about resources, research, and military history, all geared to helping our warriors to come home well. Here's your host, Dr. Tyler Piron. Welcome back to Coming Home Well. I'm your host, Dr. Tyler Piron, and today we are going to talk about September 11th. It's a day that so many people recognize as a pivotal change in our country. It's the first time our country was really attacked in mass with thousands of casualties throughout our entire history after we defeated the British at the founding of our country. Today, we have a really awesome guest. It's somebody that I've known for a long time, and he's got a lot of titles. Chaplain, Colonel, retired Dr. Joel Jenkins. He is a pastor. He is a wonderful human being, but he has the privilege and the honor of being one of the chaplains that responded to the Pentagon after the attacks on 9-11. He dealt with every type of tragedy, every type of chaos that was at the scene, dealing with the memorial services and providing all the things that chaplains do. And then he stayed on and deployed. He went all over the country, all over the world, dealing with all the tragedy that our soldiers have dealt with after 9-11. Thank you so much, Dr. Jenkins, for coming on and joining us. I know that there's a lot of things that you wrote about in your book, which is really important, and I think everybody should go read it. And it's called These Honored Dead. Reflections of the 20th anniversary of 9-11. But I've heard a lot of these stories from you. Yeah. Seen your book. So I wanted to have you on sort of reflect on 21 years after this horrific event. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Hey, thank you, Tyler. And as you said, we've known each other a long time. And you and I share a lot of common views as far as patriotism and service to our country and country first. So thank you for inviting me to be part of this show in particular. So I want to get a little background. I know you've got a lot of experience as a chaplain. Have you always been a military chaplain or did you start out somewhere else and become a military chaplain? How did that happen? Well, that's a good question and I'll give you the short answer. I have not always been a military chaplain. I was a pastor of local parishes and in 1984, I was pastoring a church in North Carolina, Kings Mountain, North Carolina, and a lot of my church members were members of the North Carolina National Guard. They were in an engineer battalion. They were There's a company headquarters in Kings Mountain, but the battalion headquarters was over in Gastonia, 15 miles away, and they had not been able to get a chaplain for that battalion in about three or four years. So I was in the congregation with a lot of these guys, and they came to me, and they said, Hey, Dr. J, we'd like for you to join the National Guard and be our chaplain. And I was 34 years old at the time, no prior service. And I said, Hey, guys, I think I might be too old. They said, Oh, no, we've checked. You can wait or make it in by 35, and you'll be okay. So they took that question mark away. And I said, Well, you know, when I came here to pastor this church, the church didn't call a guy that was going to be a chaplain in the Guard or Reserve. They said, oh, that's all right. We've already talked to the leadership. They think it's a great idea. So all of my questions, they just had all the answers. So I said, okay, I'll pray about it. And I did, and I felt led to do it. So in December 1, 1984, I was sworn in as a 
commissioned as a first lieutenant, direct commission into the North Carolina National Guard and was the chaplain for the 505th Engineer Battalion, combat heavy for eight years, actually, and did some great work with that battalion. We did missions down in Ecuador in the jungles. After the earthquake there, we were in Honduras, we were in Panama. They did a lot of great work because we were heavy combat stuff. We had like bulldozers and all that stuff. So we did a lot of civil affairs stuff. And I spent a lot of time in those countries with that mission. But when we moved to uh, North Carolina, excuse me, moved to Virginia in 1993, I transferred up to the Virginia Guard. And the closest unit to where I was living, which would be Charlottesville, I, was, I came up here to be the pastor of First Baptist Church, Charlottesville. And the closest unit for me to transfer to was in Lynchburg. And it was an infantry battalion. So I said, hey, man, you know, I've been an engineer for a while. I think that'll be interesting to go into the uh, infantry. Well, I found out it wasn't as much fun as I thought it was going to be because when I was in the engineers, I had my own dedicated vehicle. I had all kind of equipment and all kind of air support if I wanted to because we had companies all over North Carolina. And when I would go in for a drill or a two-week training, I'd just request a Huey and we would, there we go. I get up here and I found out I don't even have a vehicle. You talk about light infantry. That means you move on your feet. And I got a lot of that. So I would have to borrow a vehicle from the XO or somebody. But anyway, I loved it. I got several trips out to Fort Irwin, California with those guys. And then I made it on up to Stanton when I was I made, was promoted to lieutenant colonel and captain, of course, and major and then on up. And then I was moved over to 1st Brigade. Uh, in Stanton of the 116th Infantry Regiment, which is our legacy goes back, of course, George Washington, Indian Wars. We were part of the Augusta Militia. But then we were also in World War I, Civil War, of course, World War I, World War II, the D-Day boys, Bedford boys were part of our uh, brigade. So anyway, I was a, that's where I was serving as chaplain, still pastoring over here in Charlottesville. But once uh, the Pentagon was hit, I was actually, during the day it was hit, I was in North Carolina visiting a friend in Raleigh. We were on a golf course, and we saw at the turn, we went into the clubhouse. The first plane had already been gone in, and everybody said, what a terrible accident. Well, while we were standing there, the second one went in, and I knew then, hey, man, this is no accident. So I was getting ready to call my headquarters because the the, uh, units that are contiguous to D.C. get pretty quick call-ups if there's a need. And so I felt like, hey, I may be going. And sure enough, at the end of the day, the call came, hey, where are you? And I said, well, I'm in North Carolina. They said, well, get home. You're reporting within 48 hours. And so packed my kit, as the Brits say, and went on up to the Pentagon. And really, Tyler, that's what started most of my active duty career. Prior to that, I had just been guard. So I went on up to the Pentagon, mobilized up there, walked in the door, And they had called up chaplains from Virginia, Pennsylvania, Maryland, West Virginia. Anyway, we walk in with chaplain assistants, and they started sticking people where their needs were. Some of them were outside when they were triaging remains. You know, we were doing some sacred duty out there. Some were at the hospital. Some were set up over at the hotel where the families were gathered. I happened to be put into the Pentagon chaplain's office as his deputy. There wasn't a position. They made one and gave me that title and said, hey, you're Chaplain Haynes' deputy. So for 
About several months, I was pretty much around the office because Chaplain Haynes had a lot of stuff on his plate with meetings and staff duty and one thing and another. So I managed all of the assets that were there. I was assigning a chaplain for memorial duty outside of the Pentagon, notification duty outside of the Pentagon, critical instance trustee briefing teams. I was assigning chaplains to that. And then two weeks in, actually it was about a week in maybe 10 days in, Chaplain Haynes comes to me and he says, hey, Chaplain Jenkins, we're going to have the very first memorial service for two of the victims that will be in the Pentagon, and it's going to be on the 25th, and you're doing it. And I thought, okay, you know, you salute the flag. You know, when the military, your commander, whoever says do the job. So I was a little intimidated because, you know, I just walked in the door as a reservist, and here I'm going to be doing this uh, service for two of the first victims, Lieutenant Colonel Jerry Dickerson and Sergeant First Class Modeling. And I wanted to make sure we honored them appropriately. So make a long story short, we prepared that. I met with General Burns, the commanding officer. He was a three-star at the time, and that was in his Desper group. Two days later, I did another one with General Larry Ellis, who was a three-star at the time for his was operations, and he had lost two. So we had two on Wednesday, two on Friday. So that's how the memorials went down. And I'll never forget those four because, uh, you know, I immersed myself in their lives. I met their families. I met their coworkers. And I realized who would have thought that they gave that last full measure here in their working location there. You know, the Pentagon, as you well know, Tyler, having been there, it's a big office building. Yeah, it's, it's not the place that you think is dangerous no. or you're ever going to have an incident. No, it's an office building. And it was, you know, what's ironic too, Tyler, until the Pentagon, well, let me put it this way. Let me back up a little bit because the, on the uh, groundbreaking for the Pentagon of all things was September the 11th, 1941. I mean, it was 60 years to the day that the ground was broke for to build the Pentagon that, that this happened. And the Pentagon was the largest office building in the world until the Twin Towers were built. And they could handle 50,000. The Pentagon could handle 25,000. So when the Twin Towers opened, the Pentagon moved down a notch. And since then, they've been some other bigger buildings. But at that time, the day that 9-11 happened and those towers came down, sadly, but the Pentagon moved back into the number one slot so there was just so many ironies about all of this. But anyway, that's how I got to the Pentagon. And then a lot of things after that, I'll never forget. So the pressure of the very first memorial service, you knew there'd be a lot of press. You knew it'd be recorded. You weren't really a military guy. I mean, the National Guard, you're right. there. And prior to 9-11, it was, you know, one weekend a month, two weeks in the summer, maybe some deployments to go do some things. Yeah. But it's not quite the same. Or no, it's it not. used to not be the same. Now things are totally different. Well, in my day, for, until 9-11, and of course, everything changed after that, all of our reserves became involved, of course, in regular rotations. But before that, you know, I was a part-timer. That's the way I looked at it. That's the way the world looked at it. I didn't anticipate I would ever go active duty. I mean, I was always ready, but I never anticipated it. And I was well into my career. You know, I was halfway into my career before that happened. And so it was, it changed everything as far as my life was concerned. 
After 9-11, the military basically became my life, and I stepped out of the civilian world. As you mentioned, I had a tour in Iraq, 13 months there, and I got back from that, and the Pentagon said, hey, uh, we need you down at Fort Bragg. The division's getting ready to deploy for the first time as a division since World War II. We need a senior chaplain who has deployed to be the rear D chaplain. We got to have one that's deployed because you won't have credibility with the families if you haven't. And I said, I understand that. And they said, and we need it in 06. So I just got back home and took a few days of vacation and packed up again. And my wife and I moved to Fort Bragg and we stayed there three and a half years until I retired. Actually, I retired a year older than my MRD. Chaplains normally retire at 60 if you're reservists. Well, even active duty, they don't stay past 60 unless there's a special, maybe a priest or somebody. But they extended me. By name, I was requested to stay an extra year and cover down one more deployment of the 82nd. So I got to do that two times, did 200 memorial services for fallen paratroopers. So, you know, that's all tied in as far as I'm concerned to 9-11. All of that began to unfold because of that that event. But my time at the Pentagon, I mean, in a short two-month span, it's just unbelievable the things that I experienced supporting people. And when I went in there, the Pentagon was operating uh, basically Monday through Friday, nine to five. And you'd have a skeleton group in there on the weekends. But once 9-11, it went 24-7. So we set up chapel services there in the building, Bible studies and other things. They had some already, but we really made a presence. And it was amazing how many people participated in those things. I have, I have one question. Yeah, yeah. When you approach the Pentagon, it's a couple days later. Obviously, yeah. you saw the aftermath. You saw the building is probably still smoking, if I recall. You know, I was yeah. there. Yeah, it was. It was. Pr- the engineers hadn't, they, hadn't they been able to get in and buttress the floors yet. So you couldn't even get everybody out. What were your impressions? Well, and I tell you, at that point, it was still a rescue mission. Not a recovery mission. I mean, they were doing recovery, obviously, but there was still hope that they would find some people. And so it was still a search and rescue. But my first impressions were how in the world were bad guys able to come up with a plot that would allow them to fly a plane into the Pentagon? I just couldn't fathom that the most secure place that we have in the world, you would think. And all of a sudden, we lose 120-something of our best really just sitting behind a desk. And I just, that just what really, I thought then there's no place anywhere that's beyond their reach after that. And that other plane, as we well know, that went down in Pennsylvania was very likely headed to the Capitol. Uh, That would have been a big target. Maybe the White House, who knows? But either one, the fact that they could fly it into the end of the Pentagon, I don't think there's any question they could have flown it into the White House if that was their target or the Capitol. But, you know, I did a lot of critical incident stress debriefing sessions, too. I traveled with the, on those teams, we would have a psychiatrist, a social worker, and a chaplain, and the psychiatrist would run the deal, and they would as you well know, the, the Pentagon had, put, had published everybody that was in the building would have to go through a mental health cleansing exercise, they called it, of some sort. Depending upon 
where you were and whether or not you were close to the actual impact determined what kind of exercise they made you go through. Well, I was in a group one, one afternoon of 13 people that were from the same office staff, and they shared the experience together. And I'm sitting in that room with a psychiatrist, and he looks around the room and he says, okay, this is where we're going to do this. Everybody's going to share where they were, what their thoughts were, and this and that. And every one of those 13, except one, before they would play the game that the psychiatrist said, every one of them said, look, I'm not saying anything until I say this. And they would point, they pointed to this master sergeant over in the corner, and they said, that man saved my life. Every one of them, that man saved my life. There was a two-star general in that group. That man saved my life. And I thought, man, I'm, I want to hear the rest of this. And so they, they shared the story that they had just adjourned their meeting because they knew something was happening. So the master sergeant had stepped out into the hall, and he was clear of their office area. Well, when the plane hit, they were in the path, and their office filled up with black smoke, acrid smoke. You know all about that. And they couldn't see their hand in front of their face, intense heat all around from the fuel igniting and the fuel dump at the Pentagon igniting, two fireballs. So they, every one of them said, I knew I was going to die. I knew I was going to die, and I was reconciling myself with that. Well, this master sergeant, he had been thrown down the hall. So he crawls back up. Somehow he got a flashlight out of an emergency kit or something. And he said he crawls back up, knowing where they were, and he began to call out to them. And he said, can you hear my voice? And they said, yes, we can hear your voice. And he said, because they couldn't see anything. They didn't think there was a way out because there was heat in every direction. He said, get out on your hands and knees and crawl towards my voice. And then the guy said this. He said, come to the light. And he was shining the flashlight. And, you know, as a minister type, when you tell somebody come to the light, man, to me, you're talking about something much bigger than just that moment of a flashlight. So I thought, wow, that guy was actually the, he was the source of restoring their lives in the midst of that darkness and hopelessness because he was not going to give up on them. And they did. They all survived in that group. Several of them had arms and cast and several had some second degree burns, but they all survived. And when we had that briefing or with them, that Crystal Lincoln's trustee briefing, they were all there. But hearing them and all of them saying, that man, that man right there saved my life. And he was very humble about it. You know, he said, well, you'd have done the same thing for me. And I'm sure they would. But it was still just a moving moment. Now, one other quick thing I'll share with you a story about the Pentagon, because 9-11 for me was traumatic. But it was also, uh, it gave me an opportunity to get close to people where I otherwise wouldn't have had that occasion. I'm in my office one day at the Pentagon chaplain's office, and this Army Major line officer walks in, and he says, I've been assigned to deliver the remains. It was actually remains that had been cremated, their remains, this woman. And so it was in a stainless steel urn, beautiful stainless steel urn with an eagle on the side. And he said, I've been assigned to deliver this to the family in Maryland. And he said, I need a chaplain to go. Well, there wasn't anybody to go. So I said, okay, this is important. So I left the message with the chaplain assistant who had gone to another meeting. I said, hey, this is where I'm at. So I went with this major, and we took that urn, knocked on the door. The family was expecting us. This father and these children, probably one was maybe seven or eight, one was like nine or ten, little boy and little girl. We brought the urn in. 
the dad had us sit it on a table in the living room. Then he said, now y'all come on in the kitchen. We want you to stay a while and have something to drink with us. So we went in, sat down at the kitchen table. We knew which seat was mom's because it was obviously empty and we didn't sit there. So they pulled us up two chairs. So we knew where they wanted us to sit. And then that major also had some of her uh, personal effects. He had some rings. He had uh, a couple other pieces of jewelry. And you could tell they had been in a trauma. They were mangled. They were burnt. But they were hers. And so he was going to deliver those two. So there we are sitting at the kitchen table. And the little girl said, oh, that's the ring I gave mommy. And, you know, that was her wedding band and this and that. And I thought, you know what? And then I had this confirmed so many times later, when someone dies in service to their country, we honor them and we should. But when they die in service to their country, their act of service is completed. Their family pays the price as long as they live. And that man and that woman was a civilian worker. She was in Desper and she died, of course, along with many others, but her Two children, they lost their mom. Her husband lost his wife. When I was at Fort Bragg, every time we would lose a paratrooper and I would work with the families to make the notifications or assign another chaplain to do the notifications, that was part of my job too. From then on, you look into the face of the wife and the child or the husband, sometimes it was a female soldier who died, and you realize, okay, your hero has finished the race. They'll have no more required of them, but you will pay this debt that we've laid on you for America's freedom for the rest of your life. So I have a a deep appreciation for survivors, for the families. That's another reason why when I see the flag and I hear the national anthem, I'm not just thinking about the fallen. I'm thinking about the living. That every time that happens, it takes them back to the sacrifice their loved one made. That's why for me, I just don't know how anybody can bow the knee in front of that flag, which honors the country. But in my mind, it's the flag that goes on the casket of those fallen heroes. And it's the flag that's handed to the survivor, the spouse, the children, the parent. So for me, that's a such an important symbol. Well, anyway, I've given you a whole lot. to. So I do have one, a couple more questions. Last year, you wrote a book or you published a book last year. It was These Honored Dead, and it's the reflections on the 20th anniversary of 9-11. Now, this covers a lot of stuff, and you go back a ways, and you cover a lot of different ground. But what really prompted you to write the book besides kind of the obvious? It's the 20th anniversary, which is usually landmark time to reflect. So what kind of got you there? What sort of drove you to write the book? Well, thank you for asking that. Actually, I had a lot of stories. For instance, you know, if you read the book, you'll find out a story of a friend of mine, a a Navy commander that was killed by an EFP in Baghdad. I saw him that morning. He was blown up that during the day and I did his memorial service. I mean, it, it was a terrible tragedy for his wife and kids because he had volunteered to go to Iraq. He was a log pack guy. He had voluntarily extended two more weeks, and he died within that extension. And so there were just so many angles on it. But it's those folks that kept coming into my memory and into my mind, the families, and particularly the Pentagon, uh, Iraq. We lost a lot of folks in Iraq that I knew 
and I did services over there for them. But at Bragg, you know, doing so many, and part of my duty at Bragg was to travel all over the country to bury 82nd Airborne paratroopers because 82nd has a motto, we bury our own. And a lot of units, a lot of even larger units, if they lose someone, they'll let, uh, if they say that if the person dies is in California and their base is in Georgia or somewhere, they'll let a unit in California handle it. Well, 82nd won't do that. We would send a full burial detail, probably 10 or 12 people. We'd send the trumpeteer. We would send the firing detail. We would send the, uh, for the dignified transfer detail. We would send a chaplain. And so I traveled all over the country and met so many wonderful people. Well, a lot of their stories are in that book. And then I met some of the guys because of the 116th Infantry Connection. I met guys that landed on D-Day. Went in on the first wave. Chubby Prophet was one of them, right here in Charlottesville. Chubby ended up getting a field commission to first lieutenant because they'd lost all their officers. He was a technical sergeant. He ended up becoming a lieutenant. He got a distinguished service cross, two silver stars. I mean, so on and on. Well, I visited him on the day he died. He died at 96. He was in Martha Jefferson Hospital. I didn't know he was going to die. I just knew he was in the hospital. I went over and visited him, and we were talking, and he didn't look like he was going to die. And so <laughs> we were, we was jovial, and we were talking. And then all of a sudden, he started staring at the ceiling. And I don't know if it was a premonition. I don't know if he was seeing his wife, who had already gone on ahead. But he stopped talking to me. He shut me out at that point, and I never made any more communication with him. And he wasn't a rude kind of guy. He had just transitioned. Well, I should have known then, hey, man, something's going on here. Well, later, within two hours, that man was dead. His sons, his doctors, the nurses, nobody expected it. He was walking the halls that day. But that evening, he lay there on that bed. Well, I was with him hours before he died. And I thought about this. I was with him when he died, basically, when his life was ebbing away. And many 18, 19-year-old guys that were with him on D-Day didn't make it. He did, and I had the privilege of being with that man, honoring that man in his departure. So there was a lot of motivations for me to say, look, these stories need to be told. My dad was in World War II. My father-in-law was in the first wave on Utah Beach. He was in the 8th Infantry Division, excuse me, 4th Infantry Division, 8th. Regiment, first wave in Utah. They only had 200 casualties in Utah, where we had 5,000 down at Omaha. But he was in Hurtgren Forest. He was in the Battle of the Bulls. He got two Purple Hearts, two Bronze Stars. If he had died, you know, my wife wouldn't be here. So I told his story. I told Chubby Prophet's story. I told my dad's story, as well as a lot of the guys. I just singled out some people that I personally knew who they were and who gave their best and gave their all. So anyway, I hope people will be, you know, maybe be motivated to read the book. I'm 72, Tyler. I have no need to have my name in lights anymore or anything like that. I'm healthy. 72? I thought you were like 35. You look great. There's a $20 bill in your future. Well, well, thank you for that. But I'm saying that to say this. What's in the book to me is important, not my name in lights. I did have an opportunity in June to be presented by the Atlanta Braves at a ball game as their hometown hero. And so I went out in the sixth inning and they introduced me. They showed some videos of my war service and pictures and all that. And they gave me, you know, you know, standing O at the Braves game. 
the reason a guy from Charlottesville got to be the hometown hero is because I'm a native of Greenville, South Carolina. and They consider that kind of a suburb for the Atlanta Braves. So I was honored to get to do that sort of thing. And it was because a VP of the Braves organization had read my book. And he, a friend of mine had given it to him. So he called my friend and he said, hey, see if we can get this guy to come down. We'll have him go out on the field one game. So I've been honored. I'm saying I've been honored more than I deserve. But it's not, as far as I'm concerned now, it's the message of that book of honoring America, honoring our fallen heroes, the 1.3 million Americans who died in the line of duty for this country. That's what it's all about. I really appreciate the fact that you wrote the book because it's an important subject, 9-11, but it also reflects on a lot of other things, a lot of other sacrifices. And it's not just a 9-11 book. Obviously, that's a large part of it, but it's also before, it's after. It's a, how our services have changed as a result yeah. of sacrifice. There's yeah. a lot of reasons to go read. It's called These Honored Dead, Reflections of the 20th Anniversary of 9-11, if you're going to go Google it, you can look for Chaplain Colonel Retired Joel P. Jenkins. He's also a doctor. I think a doctor of divinity, if I recall correctly. Well, theology. Okay. You yeah. know, I'm no expert in theology hey, or yeah, divinity. Yeah. I'll cut you some <laughs> slack on that. Yeah. And it's a great book. And I think a lot of folks should go read it. As we go into September 11th, think about all the sacrifices. Think about all the things that people have done to keep our country safe. They may not have agreed with it. They may not have agreed with going to Iraq or Afghanistan or Syria or all the places that we've been. Regardless, they signed up and they went. Especially everybody has been a volunteer. That, yep. That's a huge difference. They weren't drafted. They said, you know what? My country needs me. I'm going to sign up. And they've done it knowing that we're at war. It's yep. not a... Hey, I'm going to go to college and, oh my God, there's now a war. Now, if you were signed up in 2000, maybe that was the case. But ever since then, in the last 21 years, you've yeah. known we've been at war. We know that we're deploying to combat zones where people are shooting at us yeah. because there are bad people that are trying to kill Americans in America while they're in an office building. Innocent civilians make up like 95% of all the people who died on 9-11, office workers. The vast majority yep. were Americans, but there were hundreds of people who came to America for the American dream who also perished because there is yeah. no discrimination with terrorism. They just want to kill as many people as they can. And the services in yep. our country have responded going, nope, you're not going to do that. We're going to bring the fight to you. And Yep. Honoring these folks is really important. Dr. Jenkins, thank you so much for coming on Coming Home Well. I really appreciate it. We spent a lot of time at the same places. My wife was at yeah. Bragg. I was at the Pentagon on 9-11 and then for months afterwards, probably about the same amount of time. I think it was like three or four months that I was there. I was doing recovery operations and search and rescue at the beginning and all the things. There are so many things about 9-11 that, that, to this day, you know, it chokes me up and mm. not because of the death, because that's, you know, there and that's a huge part, but the outpouring of support from the rest mm. of America. Amen. I remember festival tent that they stood up in the outer perimeter and there was this entire tent. There's multiple tents, lots of tents, but there was one. It was just full of stuff that Americans had sent 
to help the rescuers. And it was like pallets of like dog food. They said, hey, there's search dogs. Send them dog food, mm -hmm. boots, and name it. And all the rescuers could go in and just grab whatever they wanted. But the mm -hmm. hundreds of volunteers that showed up with various kitchens, there was a Baptist church from, uh, I believe it was North Carolina, yeah. served yeah. breakfast, lunch, dinner, like yeah. whatever you wanted. They were Stop just like volunteers. Army. It was just yeah. amazing. Yeah. Oh, you're right. And you hit on something else. You know, since 9-11, our military is all volunteers, man. There's no, nobody's conscripted. Nobody has to go. First time in our nation's history to fight a protracted war with all volunteers. Now, I might add this. I've got a section in the book on Vietnam because those guys did not get their fair shake of appreciation. The rest of us have been affirmed. But I wrote in there because the statistics are true. 70% of the names on the wall of the Vietnam heroes in Washington were volunteers. People lose sight of that. They weren't all conscripted. Two-thirds of them volunteered to go to Vietnam, and 70% of those on the wall volunteered. So America's always had its young men and young women step up. They've not always had the support from their fellow Americans. But when I was in Iraq, I, my office handled, just my office handled 6,000 pounds of care packages. Three tons came through my office, and we would break them down and send them back out to FOBs or wherever. So the American people, after 9-11, they got it. I just hope we never lose it again. What a great stopping point. I hope it continues. It's a time for reflection. It's a time for understanding. And I really appreciate the fact that you've captured these memories. You've captured this history, which is really important. Dr. Jenkins, thank you so much for coming on Coming Home Well. Thank you, Tyler. God bless my man. God bless America. Thanks for joining us this week on Coming Home Well with Dr. Tyler Pieron. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and a review. Follow us on Instagram at cominghomewell underscore BTS or on Twitter at cominghomewell. Thanks again. And until all are home and all are well, this is Coming Home Well.